Hello and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Now, there was something that we wanted to cover with regards to Preacher, and we've been putting it off. Something about dogs. Oh, God. <laughs> These dogs are so upset, but they will have their day. That day is today. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're covering Preacher issues 61 through 63 which is the first half of the last six issues and the middle part of the final story arc. Right. It's the middle third of the final nine issues, which are really a story arc. Yeah. Where we left off in Preacher, Jesse discovered that his old mate Cassidy was actually kind of a massive fuck-up and a long-term heroin addict and serial abuser of women. Just a real dog shit guy. (laughs) Right. So he challenged him to, do we want to say it's a fight yet, or just a meetup at this point? Showdown. A showdown, yes. That is what it is. It is a showdown. I don't know if it'll take place at high noon. Well, it'll certainly take place at the Alamo. Most definitely. So they are going to meet at the Alamo in San Antonio. Did you forget? That it was the Alamo? Yeah, did you forget Did I forget the, the Alamo? Alamo? <laughs> no, I remembered the Alamo. Okay, good. So pieces are in motion, characters are gathering in that sort of area for the final confrontation. Right. And the Saint of Killers said, what's your damn plan, preacher? Oh yeah, that's right. Jesse proposed a plan to the Saint of Killers to finally get God. Yeah, But that's not actually going to come up in these three issues, but it is a big part of the final story arc. Right. It took a whole lot of doing to get him to actually listen and consider what Jesse had to say. Mm Mm-hmm. But by God. Texas, by God. Okay, so each of the issues we're covering this week was written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon, colors by Pamela Rambo, lettered by Clem Robbins, edited by Axel Alonso, and with covers by Glenn Fabry. Right, and this first Glenn Fabry cover depicts a very sober-looking hair star, sort of superimposed above a council of seven guys in robes. Right, continuing the theme, each of the covers of the last several issues features the face of one of the leads. And we open on a nearly identical scene. Seven blokes are sat around this table with a webcam computer at one end. That's kind of a neat image, these guys in their, like, ancient druid robes, but they're talking to a webcam. Right. The robes are, like, really simple in design in the actual comic art, and on the cover, they are white with red trim in the grail colors. But here they're just, like, purple or brown. Yeah, I wonder if that was a thing where the colorist didn't have enough time Mm, okay, uh, to do the more complex design of them. That actually makes sense. So these guys have a long litany as they get together. We basically spend a page on their opening ceremonies here but it ends with many times blessed are we all father star you shower of fucking cunts (laughs) so he doesn't have much that they're going to like to hear to say to them your insults are refreshing all father (laughs) really (laughs) last issue star called for a meeting with the grail council the day after tomorrow so it is two days since then and five days until jesse's meeting with cassidy in san antonio right so these robe boys, well, they've got this kind of leader guy here who's sitting at the opposite end of the table from the computer, and he basically comes out and accuses Star. 
No more beating around the bush. Your action in Arizona was a gross abuse of power, but we suspected worse. The destruction of Posada, the death of the child. You? Me. Your little goblin Eisenstein would have told you as much if I hadn't kicked him off a building. Hey, that's what happened to Eisenstein. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Also that I plan to substitute a mortal man for your farce of a messiah and hijack the Armageddon plan for my own ends. The star wraps up. Armageddon is cancelled. The Grail's new objective is revenge. Yeah, as he said in the previous issue, Armageddon can wait. He is no longer planning to hijack Armageddon. He doesn't even want to do it anymore. He's now turning the complete resources of the Grail just to killing Jesse Custer. Right, Star makes like a stacker Pentecost and cancels the apocalypse. Fuck yeah. Star, he goes on to say that he once believed he was fighting a war on behalf of humanity against chaos, but he has decided humanity's not worth it. Certainly not worth the litany of injuries and indignities he's suffered over the course of this comic. Yeah, right. He points out that he's had his head carved, he's lost a leg. And he pulls down his pants to show his catheter in place of his penis that was eaten by a dog. And he says, Gaze on the face of war. Yeah. Star says, The resources and material you would have pissed away will bring about his doom. But the leader of the guys replies, Star, you are the one who is doomed. Yep, so this leader guy calls for a Captain Gander, who is a leader in the Samsons, the Grail's armed forces. Yeah, and he accuses Star of having succeeded where Herod failed to sever the bloodline of Christ. Right, but the door is locked and there doesn't seem to be anyone outside and there's something, there's kind of a funny smell in the room. Chlorine. They tell me it's not unlike drowning. So this whole chat has just been... Star is doing that weird supervillain thing where he uh, <laughs> has a very long conversation with some people who he's just going to kill anyway. He's doing the Goldfinger thing? Yeah. He gathered all of these people just to show them the presentation and then kill them. Right, yeah. He expects them to die. Right, yep. All of the Samson troops since 1982 were personally trained by Star, so they are all loyal to him, and they killed the council at his behest. Star, no! You killed the Grail! You damn the world! This is about mankind's salvation! This is about my genitals. Go on to extinction, holy men. Also catching their breath, we find uh, Jesse and Tulip. Yeah. First we get a page showing that they are staying at the Diamond Motel, which is the jewel in the crown of San Antonio, except that one of the letters is missing from the crown. <laughs> and we've got a totally naked Tulip tearing Jesse's clothes off. Goddamn, girl. What'd you be like after two weeks? And now... And now Tulip raises her suspicion... That what with the sex being so good, she is reminded of the fact that the last time the sex was this good was right before he ditched her in France. Right. Jesse says that he's not going to do that again, not after she's proven herself time after time. New Orleans, Monument Valley. He adds that maybe the reason for their enthusiasm is that she thought he was dead for six months. You are hell and Jesus with that pistol, girl. You think I forgot it? You sure have hit on an empty chamber. That silver tongue son of a bitch. Tulip has her own say, though, that she knows he's getting ready to finish things, and she is definitely going. Now, I have a fucking arsenal out in that truck, and I will use it. I will fight like hell to protect you, to protect us both, and the good life we have coming. Yeah, she also points out that with Hairstar, the Saint of Killers, Cassidy, and God all in the mix, it's for sure that there's going to be trouble before this is all over. This won't have a quiet ending, she says. Elsewhere in San Antonio, we find Hoover sitting in a car coordinating over the phone with some troops. 
This is one of Star's constant grail adjutants. And he sees a face he remembers out the car window. Jesse. And he flashes back to asking Jesse, what, what was my sin? Fucking with me and mine. Get to it. As Jesse used the word of God on him to command him to count three million grains of sand. Which he eventually completed, which is how he's, he's back, but it took him a long, long time. So he jumps out in front of Jesse and Tulip as they're walking to dinner, pulls a gun on them. Ha 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 ha! Vengeance is mine! Who might you be? Jesse asks, not ruffled. Meanwhile, Star and Featherstone are preparing in the hotel room. When Featherstone says, it's time. Time for what? For me to tell you that I love you. I've been waiting to say it for so very, very long. She explains that she's always seen this great strength in him, and everything that's happened recently has only shown basically that that strength is deeper and stronger than she imagined. Mm -hmm. His resolve remains unwavering. He has not been broken by all the things that have been thrown his way. Of course, I... Me and other readers probably are thinking that he actually has been broken. He's <laughs> he's completely given up on his ideals and his mission. Right. He's taken leave of his marbles. <laughs> yes. Featherstone, could you see yourself kneeling behind me with a sawfish and thrusting it into my rectum yelling, Who's the man? Who's the man? Because that's currently the only way I can achieve even a glimmer of sexual satisfaction. Could you do it? No. Of course you couldn't. You make a much better adjutant than you ever would a lover, Featherstone. Uh, See? I told you the sawfish was going to come back. Oh, you're right. Completely forgot about that bit. And as Star had mentioned before, when we saw him on a date in the the Hair Star special, One Man's War, his interest is not social, it is merely coital. And so, facing her rejection, Featherstone can only say, Yes, Hair Star. He's brusque here, but he's not exactly wrong. Featherstone's love for him is somewhat naive. It assumes there's a person under the surface of Harry Star's brutal exterior capable of being nicer to her. Yeah. Nope. Right. Yeah, and he's not he's not being cruel here. He's he's giving her the hard truth. But certainly we've seen him we've seen him be meaner to his subordinates. <laughs> well that's than just true. sort of than just sort of brushing off her idea and telling her to get back to work. <laughs> yeah. But he he shits on the idea of any relationship coming from this. He's you could view this as another way that Star is giving up on the idea of basically having any happy ending for himself besides revenge. Mm-hmm. So, back on the street, Hoover's got Jesse at gunpoint. Tulip pulls her gun on Hoover. Yeah, but Jesse tells her it's okay as he gently takes Hoover's gun away. And what we have here is basically a replay of the scene between Jesse and Arseface several dozen issues earlier. Yeah, this was like right before New Orleans. And yeah. Arseface caught up. He had been chasing Jesse since the first story arc to get revenge for sort of accidentally getting his father to commit suicide. And Jesse basically just talked him down, showed a little human kindness, and convinced him that revenge wasn't really what he wanted. And he does the same here. He remembers who Hoover was. I've been through some shit, Hoover, so my memory ain't what it was. But I do recall what I did to you and why I did it. You grail boys had tried to kidnap Tulip here, part of some scheme or other starhead to fuck me up. So I was pissed about that. But if I'm being truthful, I was mostly just pissed at myself for not being there when she needed me. And I guess I took that out on you. You ain't no bad man, Hoover. A fool could see that. You maybe hitched your mule to the wrong wagon, but you didn't deserve the awful thing I did. So I apologize. 
Hoover is in tears, remembering the horror of being trapped in what he knew was madness, but couldn't resist for months. Yeah, he, he talks about knowing what you're doing is insane, but not being able to stop. So Jesse does him a kindness here by using the word of God again and saying, just forget it. Yep, and uh, Hoover makes kind of a blissed out face and then passes out. Oh, I get it, says Tulip. And she starts making fun of Jesse for doing miracles and having the initials JC and warns that he's on the verge of starting a religion around himself. Which, of course, he secretly kind of dug. Yeah, and the comic book ends with this panel of Hoover laying on a park bench. What do you want to call this? Sort of perfectly at peace. Mm-hmm. Sucking his thumb. I like this scene generally. I am not crazy about having him suck on his thumb. Okay. I think that that's part of a trend in media of infantilizing black men. Oh, okay, okay. This issue kind of infantilizes That's... everybody who's loyal to the Grail, or at least both Featherstone and Hoover. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Featherstone is having a different kind of moment here, which Hoover will also have. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. But generally, I like this scene. I like that Jesse and Hoover use their words. Yeah, and it's nice that Jesse, who has immense power, both in his basically unbeatable fighting skills and in the word of God, he's he's not abusing it so much anymore. Right. He isn't enforcing the rule of don't fuck with me. He recognizes when his when his enemies are not bad people, not deserving of a cruel fate. Right. Yeah, it's what he recognized about Ars face so many issues ago, and he is now able to recognize it about Hoover where he didn't before. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Arseface... Yeah, on the cover of Preacher number 62, and every dog his day, that's the... that's the one. It's really gonna happen. Yes. Here we go. We have the face of Arseface looming over the town of Salvation, Texas. So we open on Arseface driving in an old pickup, and for almost two full silent pages, he's just driving. Yeah, he drives by some guys who are changing a tire, uh, and his appearance causes them to vomit. And then, arriving in Salvation, he goes into Jody's bar, and his appearance causes everybody hanging out in there to vomit as well. S-sorry, dude, says Toby. That's okay. How's all the time? Hoover, meanwhile, wakes up in a musical. Hello, birds. Hello, sky. Hello, people passing by. And he clicks his heels. Yep, kind of joyfully running through the city in his newfound peace. Horseface leaves the bar and hears somebody shouting, Hey, Freak Show! But not at him. And this is basically a replay of a moment that we saw with Jesse when he first arrived in Salvation. Yeah, some roughs were making fun of Lori, which is what's happening now. Lori, of course, is the one-eyed child of Jesse's very inbred neighbors from when he was a kid. That's right. And Horseface intervenes here. He runs at them, and maybe not in the way that he intended to, he gets the roughs to fuck off. Holy <laughs> living fuck, what is this place? <laughs> I knew we shouldn't have stopped here. Yep, so they jump in the car and take off. And, and we're being informed here as they do that they are out-of-towners who just sort of stopped and caused some trouble. There's not trouble inbuilt in Salvation anymore. <laughs> right. Horseface and Lori introduce themselves, and she insists on buying him a meal before he leaves town. Yeah, so I wondered about this. Is he just passing through? Has he been to Salvation before? It certainly seems like he wasn't deliberately on his way here at the beginning of this issue. Okay. So he just happens to be passing through Salvation. 
Yeah, he's from Anvil, right? Yeah. Not Salvation. Which several characters from, well, no, I, I guess I was going to say several characters from either Anvil or Angelville have ended up here. Right. Well, Lori is also from Anvil. No, she's from Angelville. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All the characters we knew who were in Salvation were from Angelville. Were from Angelville. Yeah. So I guess we can infer that it's, like, not that far from the Texas-Louisiana border. Right. Of the fictional cities in Preacher. Mm-hmm. We see Sheriff Cindy Daggett and Jesse's mom, Christina, witness Laurie and Arseface going into the bar together. Hmm, they say in unison. Mm-hmm. Hoover happily greets Star and Featherstone as they arrive in the San Antonio airport. Star is not so happy. Christ almighty, what a loathsome shithole. Why does Custer insist on frequenting such sweaty little pits of nothing anyway? Hoover offers to take Featherstone's bags. But not Hair Star's. I'm already carrying Featherstone's bags, Mr. Star. So? So it won't kill you to carry your own things for a change, will it? <laughs> and we get a panel here of Hoover walks on while Star and Featherstone are both, like, stunned <laughs> in their tracks. <laughs> yeah, kind of aghast at this treatment. Back in Jody's bar, we catch up with Hector and the Rednecks. Yeah, he is making fun of the rest of the Rednecks because none of them noticed that he had the best formal education out of the group, and he now has a job as foreman at the plant and all of their boss. Yep, and everybody's kind of fawning over him now. But what plant, you may, you may wonder? Valid question. Lori, meanwhile, is telling Arseface how peaceful things have been under Sheriff Daggett when... Oh, hello, Mr. Quincannon! Yeah, and here we are introduced to Conan Quincannon, Odin's brother. Odin's rather saintly brother. Yeah, and he's kind of drawn like a benevolent version of Odin. Right, similar features. He's got this, he's got this beard, which I guess makes him look nicer. Yeah, the beard, a little bit of hair on top of his head. Mm-hmm. Kind of looks like Stan Lee, actually. <laughs> yeah, he kind of does. But he's a slightly less cartoonishly, like, small and warped version of Odin Quincannon. Right. Turns out that he opened a factory here and he sort of saved the town. And he mentions that Arseface was on TV, so Lori asks about it. Yeah, Arseface explains that he used to be a rock star, but that part of his life is over. A rock star? I thought it would be something like that. Uh, I'm through with fame, says Arseface. He's through with fame. Lori steps away and Arseface talks to Christina for a moment. He asks what's wrong with Lori's eye, but he doesn't mean her eye, he means her vision. Well, that's just a little condition. Her brain sometimes gets different signals from her eye than it's supposed to. So she sees a house, say, but her eye tells her brain she's looking at a herd of hogs, and so on. But don't let that fool you. Lori's a bright, bright girl, with a good, good heart. You might do well to remember that. And we get one panel here that's from Lori's point of view, where the tavern is full of fun, cartoony characters. She perceives one of the patrons as a palm tree and another one as a space shuttle. And she perceives the rednecks gathered around the table as a walrus and several penguins <laughs> gathered around a battle tank, <laughs> which I think is my favorite. And she asks our space, so why are you called our space anyhow? Now, at Star in the Grail's hotel, we've got Star in his room saying, Doomcock. Oh yes, Doom this again. Doomcock. <laughs> and in the next room, Hoover is asking, Is it big enough for you, Featherstone? 
<laughs> but he means the hotel room. He's kind of delighted by the relatively modest accommodations. While Featherstone works, Hoover has got something important to tell her. I love you. He goes on for a couple of pages about how long it took him to realize it, how if she had cruelly dismissed him when he came back from the beach, he probably would have gone insane. It's the little acts of decency, he says, that sustain us in this dark world. What? I'm sorry, Hoover. I tuned out completely there. What was it you were talking about? Nothing. He leaves the hotel and makes his way to a liquor store. I've come to find out about drinking. Well, you've come to the right place! <laughs> This liquor store owner is very aware of his role in life, and he's reading a copy of Anal Rampage, the favorite fictional pornographic magazine of this comic. Sitting on the porch of Jody's, Arseface is joined by Conan. I'm in shit. Oh, you can dress it up, call it liquid waste management or effluent disposal, but it all comes down to shit. A shit plant. Yeah... Conan recognizes that Arseface probably has done some things that he isn't too proud of and is probably looking for a fresh start. Opening up the ship plant is sort of a fresh start for Conan, too. He feels he has to make amends for what his brother Odin did to the town. Right. So he says, I got a kind of proposition for you. Would you like to come and shovel shit for me? You betcha! Yep, and Arseface runs to tell Lori the good news, but she already knows. She asked Conan to give him a job. You did? But why? Because I really, really like you. Arseface turns away and puts his hand up and says, I'm just going to read the translation, not the actual words. No, no, you're just being nice. It'd be awful for you. I'm completely hideous. But, but you're not hideous, Arseface. I mean, not from where I'm standing. And now we see Arseface from... Lori's point of view. Yes, and she perceives him as an extremely sexy man. I thought this was specifically James Dean. Isn't James Dean uh, dark-haired? Mm, you may be right. Well, whether it's a generic sexy man or a specific sexy man, she perceives him as a sexy man. Right. In a sort of crude poetry, the guy with the incredibly ugly face meets a woman who doesn't see faces. Right. She asks how he could possibly be interested in her... Well, buggers can't be choosers. Yep, and they kiss in this sort of giant heart frame made of flowers on a one-page spread with a slurping sound and drool pouring down. <laughs> kind of sweet. <laughs> it's oddly sweet for a, for a kind of comically contemptuous moment as well. Yeah. Maybe contempt is the wrong word, because I feel like there's genuine affection for these characters, even though they're, they're also ridiculous. Yes, genuine affection and genuine condescension as well. Yes, condescension is a much better word. In the motel room, Tulip is saying that if Hoover is here, then Star must be also. How did they know we'd be in San Antonio, she wonders. Jesse plays dumb. Right, we know from the last couple of issues that in all likelihood, Jesse called them and told them that's where he was going to be. Tulip asks when she gets to find out his big plan. Every time she asks, he distracts her with sex. Tell you tomorrow, baby. I promise. Now she asks why he takes pity on everyone who sticks a gun in his face, calling back to Hoover last issue and Arseface many, many issues ago. Yeah, she's kind of putting a lampshade on the fact that the scene with Hoover was nearly identical to the scene with Arseface, mm -hmm. which I think is good. It would have seemed like an oversight if someone didn't mention it. <laughs> right. 
And this is, she points out, in stark contrast to the way he deals with most people who fuck with him. But as we said, he's not really enforcing the law of don't fuck with me, so much as the law of don't be an asshole. Yeah, Jesse says, Hoover in our face, there's no evil in him. I guess everyone deserves a second chance to get things right when you get down to it. Everyone? Good night, Jesse. And that seemed to me like she's alluding to Cassidy. Mm, yeah. Hopefully we're not giving Cassidy a second chance, right? Ah, <laughs> She's yeah. sort of asking. Yeah, and she has been the victim of sort of the worst of Cassidy. Right. So, preacher number 63. Jesse's girl. On the cover we have Tulip, and down below, Jesse and Tulip kissing outside a pickup. Indeed. Another Glenn Fabry cover. Still in the motel room, Jesse's answering Tulip's question about the best and the worst day of his life. The worst, he says, is when Jody shot her. Thank Christ you made it, baby. I didn't make it. Jody shot me between the eyes at point-blank range. Back of my head was gone. You saw it happen, Jesse. How could I possibly have survived that? You know what happened. God brought you back. It was a warning. He saved you so I'd leave him be. But why would God save me, Jesse? You know as well as I do. God's a bastard. And as she says this, our camera moves behind her head to show the back of her head blown off. And Jesse wakes in a cold sweat. It's kind of funny that he has cute couple conversations with Tulip in his sleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once he wakes up, it turns out that Tulip is here and she's just fine. She's loading all the guns in the bathroom so she doesn't wake him. Yes, we get our title page of Tulip sitting in the bathroom playing with guns and grenades in her underwear. <laughs> Yeah, it occurs to me now, like, I'm not saying that Tulip is not a well-rounded and interesting character. She is. But, you know, it's also somebody's thing to have her loading guns in the bathroom in her underwear. Do you remember Jackie Brown? The movie? Yeah. Yeah? How they have the, they're watching that video. The gun video, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the um, beginning. It's just girls in bikinis, like, firing guns. This is what Ordell's using to explain to Robert De Niro about all the guns that he sells. Right. What's great about that scene, too, is the focus on Ordell's hand as he's playing with the remote, and the fact that he's presenting the video out of order, so he has to keep rewinding and fast-forwarding and pausing. And it shows us early on that, like, Ordell needs to be in control of the situation. Right. And we get that again when he sends Robert De Niro out to the car to listen to the stereo, but he's got, like, such complex instructions for using his stereo that Robert De Niro doesn't even turn it on. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a good movie. Yeah, it is. Good performance by uh, Robert Forster. Yeah, definitely. Elsewhere we find Star, Featherstone, and Hoover watching the Alamo from a rooftop. Uh, yes, Star requests his binoculars from Hoover... Who hands them to him. That's important. Mm-hmm. They've got the police called off, called out of the way. They've got a sniper ready to go. Why are we staking out the Alamo again? Because that's where our informant said Custer would be. Keep your mind on the job, Featherstone. Oh, yes. Any progress on identifying the informant? I'm afraid, nah. Well, fucking get on with it, then. They're just sort of reminding us of the events that have brought them to this juncture. As Star puts down the binoculars... We see now that ink rings have formed around his eyes. Hoover played a little prank on him. What's the matter with you today, Featherstone? I'm engineering the downfall of our greatest adversary, and you're standing there like a zombie. For Christ's sake, even Hoover's pulled his head out of his ass for once. What the fuck are you staring at? Featherstone is just kind of cautiously silent on this point. Hoover is losing his shit. <laughs> right, yeah. Star walks away to go inspect the Samson team, 
And Hoover doubles over with laughter. Jesse, meanwhile, hands Tulip a bottle of water as they're preparing to leave. Just don't trust things you're handed in this comic. Right. He's reading a book that he stole from Miss Oatlash, the uh, woman who was sexually obsessed with the Third Reich. The Nazi dominatrix, I think is what you mean. Yeah, that's a simpler way of putting it. <laughs> and that's, that's undeniably right. The book is about Axis fighter planes, and this causes Tulip to mention that she wanted to be a fighter pilot. And Jesse reads a little poem by a kamikaze pilot. I am an empty dream. Like snow left on the mountains in summer, I feel my warm blood moving inside of me, and I am reminded that I am living. My soul will have its home in the rising of the sun. If you feel sad, look at the dawn with all of its beauty, and you will find me there. Yeah, that's a little bit sad, Tulip says, and, and she's right. It's obviously a poem that's saying, sort of, you will still find beauty in the world when I am gone. Right. Come here, honey. Jesse says, and he answers the question that she asked in a dream. Best day of my life was when I turned around and saw you for the very first time. Why, Jesse, what brought that on? She asks, and they kiss, and then she passes out. I'm so sorry. Sorry, this is all I could think of. And we focus on the water bottle that Jesse handed her. Oh, what a tool! <laughs> he did the wrong thing. He's been hauled over the coals for doing that in France many's a time. And he had the opportunity to not do it this time, and he did the wrong thing. And he done, done, done it again! Ah, I'm so disappointed. So, they're going to inspect the Samson team. Star still has the ink on his face that he doesn't know about. But he asks Hoover why are there so few of them. Right, he's disgusted to learn that they only have about two dozen men. Hoover explains that this is all that's left. They lost a lot at Masada, and even more at Monument Valley. We've been seeing Grail guys dropping like flies in basically every major battle of the series. Furthermore, most of the deep cover operatives who he pulled in didn't bother to come. Yeah, that's right. The Grail has people shadowing every world leader, and Star tried to call them in to supplement their forces. But Hoover says it turns out they like being in deep cover. I mean, you're talking about people who move in the highest echelons of political power as they shadow their targets. People who live in the lap of luxury. You can see how they might not be all that keen to leave it. Those fuckers! Right, now Star goes in to brief the troops, still with the ink on his face. And he says he's going to feed those idiots the appropriate bullshit. Yeah, that's important. This leads to a conversation between Featherstone and Hoover about the... prank. He's the all-father of the Grail, for God's sake. He's going to look ridiculous. So why didn't you stop him? He'd have killed you. He probably still will. Come on, I don't want to miss this. We'll watch from the door, then I'll make myself scarce for an hour or two. Meanwhile, the appropriate bullshit. Star blames the destruction of Masada on traitors within the council. This, he says, is why he executed them all, or why he had Captain Gander execute them all. I believe this guy with the beret and the mustache is Captain Gander. He is. He expresses priority number one. Yeah, he says this is the final battle before Armageddon can begin. The Reverend Jesse Custer must die. Gander is smirking to himself. He's unable to keep a straight face. Once Custer arrives, and we have every reason to believe he will, he will allow him access to the area and then seal off all exits. Photo ID on Custer and his associates will of course be provided. Captain Gander and I will handle the actual kill. Your priority is perimeter security. Furthermore, you must... must... Captain Gander... Hmm? Captain Gander... All father? <laughs> 
I didn't know Captain Gander was going to have that accent. Okay. <laughs> Would you mind telling me, Captain, what exactly the fuck you think is funny? <laughs> My other religious accent. Huh. <laughs> <sighs> I guess most Samsons were recruited from European Special Forces units. Oh, look at him. Look how French he is. <laughs> All right. Jesse leaves Skeeter and Tulip in the motel room. He's left a letter for Tulip. Just like last time. He says to himself, what he hates about this is how it makes a lie of every time that he said he trusted her. Jesus, I truly hate a goddamn lie. There's no one he'd rather have at his back, he says, but he just can't face losing her again. Not when he's up against Cassidy, who can take bullets, and Star, who has an army, and God, who's God. <laughs> yeah. And at this point, we find out that Jesse is not actually talking to himself here in the hotel room. Right. How come, how come doing right and shooting straight so easy, except when it comes to how you deal with women? Well, Pilgrim, ain't a man alive can give you the answer to that. It's John Wayne. Right. No, men can't possibly understand women as kind of an old, old chestnut. Well, yeah, I agree. I don't really actually like much of this conversation between Jesse and John Wayne, but we'll come to that mm, okay. after we've seen more of it. Featherstone tries to apologize to Star as he comes out of the room, and he spits right in her face. And as Hoover watches this, he is at first very amused, and then suddenly horrified when he sees what Star does. Yeah, Featherstone's just kind of stunned or despondent here, but Hoover is horrified. So says the Duke, you figured out how to finish this fight. Yeah, I came up with a kind of idea. Already kicked the lid off it, as a matter of fact. Funny thing is, only way I could see it working was if I didn't come through in one piece. Think I'm crazy? Think you ought to make sure the bullet holes are in your front. This is kind of a classic metaphor for cowardice or, or, or bravery is... Uh, make sure the wounds are in the front. This is also a direct reference to the Alamo, and John Wayne directed and starred as Davy Crockett in the 1960 movie. After the battle, when Jim Bowie's mother found out he had died, she said, I'll wager no wounds were found in his back. Right. That's in real life, not in the movie. Right. Well, purported real life. Yeah, it, it's the legend. Yeah. John Wayne asks if Jesse remembers his father's advice. Jesse repeats the advice that his father had given him. Don't take no shit off fools. Judge a person by what's in them, not how they look. And do the right thing. You gotta be one of the good guys, son. Because there's way too many of the bad. Think you lived up to them words, Pilgrim? Think you've been one of the good guys? I don't know. I ain't got the slightest idea. Good answer. The Duke goes on to say that this last thing Jesse's gonna have to do alone. He opens the motel room door, somehow. At this point, the scenery kind of vanishes, and it's just him and Jesse in a black void, and the door is just a column of light. Jesse thanks him for the years of assistance and for being a goddamn hero. Hell, Pilgrim, I'm just a broke-down, wore-out old cowboy. But this broke-down, wore-out old cowboy wanted you to know. He's proud of you. And he steps through the door of light and is gone. Yeah, and that is the end of that issue. Which brings us to the end of the issues we are covering today. So I think that there's two different levels that that scene is trying to work on. Mm -hmm. And as a send-off for the relationship between John Wayne and Jesse, I think it works pretty well. Uh I actually really like the part where he flashes back to the words his father told him. Right, yeah. 
The Duke isn't exactly a role model in his own right. He kind of keeps Jesse on the path, reminds him of the good advice that his father gave him. Right. But where I don't think it works is as a summation of the internal conflict within Jesse for having to ditch Tulip again. Okay. You know, this is supposed to be her issue. It's her on the cover. It's her in the title. And she gets knocked out very near the beginning of it. That's <laughs> true. And spends most of it unconscious while we get Jesse's justifications. <laughs> uh, yeah, I see what you mean. It's, it's genuinely upsetting that he's done this to Tulip again. Yeah. Uh, at the risk of spoiling some of the ending of Preacher, she's not actually done being in this story. Right. True. She still plays an important role. But not in the rest of this issue. No. You know? It would almost have been better to have him having an imaginary conversation with her. Okay. But yeah, I just... I, I don't like... You know, he's done this thing that I'm so disappointed in him for. Mm-hmm. And the issue ends with John Wayne saying, I'm proud of you. You know? Yeah, it's that's Just letting him right. off the hook way too much. Yeah, I think that moment maybe needs to... That's a fine moment to have, but it needs to not come after he's done something genuinely reprehensible. Right. And yeah, if you were if you were having this conversation with an imaginary tulip, then he would still sort of feel accountable to her in a way that he isn't. Yeah, and I would love to see, like, imaginary tulip just, you know, not giving in and not forgiving him. Right. And saying, you know, walk out that door without me if you have to, but... Know that you done fucked up. Well, and that would that would really establish sort of the stakes as well, because right. we know, again, at the risk of spoiling some of what's to come, I guess he may have saved her life with this move, but she is not going to forgive him for it. Right. It does feel a little premature reviewing these issues in light of the fact that they're sort of the middle of the story arc. We don't have the end of the story arc in front of us quite yet. Well, that's true but i also like when i think of the end of preacher i think of the three issues we haven't covered yet okay i don't necessarily think (laughs) back to these issues (laughs) they're really like the fireworks are yet to come yeah that's that's true and these issues are reasonably reasonably good they're propulsive there's good character stuff in them building up to why Jesse makes the choice that he makes, as well as setting up a lot. It may You could argue that it goes on a little long with Star and Featherstone and Hoover uh, yeah. being domestic comic, but it does, it does set up stuff for those characters that is going to be important in how they resolve. Right. Yeah, I thought that Every Dog Has His Day was a little too on the nose with, like, <laughs> yeah. giving, you know, giving the dogs of the series their sort of condescending happy endings you know <laughs> okay arseface and Lori and hoover although hoover also has some unhappiness thrown into thrown into his these are characters who have traditionally kind of been the butts of jokes and yeah now they all get very kind of very kind of just so happy endings you know yeah hector as well yeah, Hector. Being sort of one of the very few people of color in this tiny town, and the rednecks are kind of kind of awful to him, but he deals with it because he needs to have some friends. And then he gets this sort of perfect ending where he's... He's all their boss. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just... It's just... It's a little bit condescending how Garth Ennis sort of designates these characters as the dogs, <laughs> you okay. know, and gives them... 
he gives them happy endings as if to say, see, I don't, I don't do wrong by my characters. I don't have contempt for my characters. But the happy endings he gives them aren't necessarily worked for and don't necessarily feel super thoughtful. Okay, I, I guess I'm inclined to, to read that as a slightly less false than you're reading it. Okay. Because I, I think Garth Ennis genuinely has affection for Ars face. Well, that's for sure. He, you know, he definitely does. And there's a real sort of shoe out the clowns aspect to it of getting rid of sort of the most comic characters, getting them safely out of the way. Right. Where they will not need to take part in the dangerous fireworks of the, the true ending. Yeah, it's interesting how little Ars face intersects with Jesse in the second half of this series. Yeah, that's true. Although I guess by finding his way to salvation, he's not interacting with Jesse directly, but he's... He's interacting with Jesse's handiwork. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's an almost magical aspect to the way that things have gotten so much better, so perfectly better in Salvation. Right. Particularly through the agency of Odin Quincannon's brother, who's nice, and just came in and fixed everything. <laughs> right, yeah. But, you know, when I first read the final issues of the series, I don't remember how many I read at a shot, but it was a significant number, because this is a hard series to put down, and yeah, I think I read probably, like, the last 12 issues or more in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. The first time through, not not this time through. Yeah, so it's, it is gripping, and it will stay that way. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah, so in our next Preacher episode, it's the conclusion of Preacher. With a hell of a vision. But in two weeks, join us as we wrap up Sandman. It's the end of Sandman. In the Tempest. And keep an eye out. After our final Sandman episode, we will be doing a capstone Sandman episode where we discuss the series as a whole in a sort of a roundtable format with Ryan and Joanna from What's Lightsaber's Precious. Woo! I'm excited. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Eric. Our theme music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. I produce the show and Eric handles social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to reach us, you can send us an email. The email address is vertiguys at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at vertiguys. You can reach me at blankcastshawn. You can find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash vertiguys. No, okay. Nope, nope, that's it. That's really <laughs> it as far as publicly available contact information. <laughs> My P.O. box number is... <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> If you're enjoying the show, why don't you go ahead and leave a positive rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. We will love you for it. It helps people to find the show. Tell a friend. Tell a group of friends that you'll provide music for a long car trip. And then bring nothing but vertigas. <laughs> they may not appreciate it, but we sure will. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Well, this has probably been out for a while, but I just found out. You're aware that Disney Plus is going to have a streaming show entitled The Mandalorian, set in the Star Wars universe in which a Mandalorian hunts bounties. Yes, I've known that for a while. The executive producer is Jon Favreau. Oh, okay, okay. But, okay, so Pedro Pascal plays The Mandalorian, and somehow they got Werner Herzog to be in this fucking thing. Pedro Pascal is the guy, he played that dude that gets kidnapped by vampires in the first episode of Buffy season four. Yes. That's that actor. That's that guy. And, and nothing else that we know is <laughs> that role. He's the guy who likes, uh, you know, of human bondage.
Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm struggling to remember where else we might have seen him. My my head is really hurting trying to come up with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there is anything. <laughs> <laughs> the trailer I saw did not show his face at all, which, like, I, sh- I assume when you cast Pedro Pascal that you show his face, because he's a very handsome man. Yeah. But the trailer kept him mysterious by keeping his mask on. Yeah. God made that face, and it delights me. <laughs>